Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 113, recorded February 27th, 2013. So this will be our seventh ongoing episode, and today we'll do ongoing 17, 18, and countdown to darkness number two. Yes. Finding out more of the backstory on the new movie, which I'm very much looking forward to. And speaking of backstories, we have quite a few backstories going on in the ongoing issues, too. Right, so instead of trying to step on the toes of what's gonna, what's happening in the uh, Countdown to Darkness, uh, the ongoing series has taken a step back and is kind of doing uh, one-offs on various crew members to kind of give more background on them. Right. So today we have McCoy and Uhura. Yes, we find out their backstory in the rebooted universe. Right, which I'm going to have some comments on because they don't quite tie up with the backstory of the the original universe. That is true. However, they cleverly gave themselves an out for that, didn't they? So you're saying that the Kelvin's destruction is what caused certain people not to be born? I don't get it. Reset, baby. Reset. <laughs> yes, reset at the time. Don't... Are you going to argue with me on this? No, I I agree with you that it's a reset, but it should be a reset at <laughs> the time of the Kelvin's destruction and that everything... I mean, I guess there's the whole butterfly effect, but yes. I can't see how something that happened you know, on the Kelvin would trickle down and prevent something from happening in some small town in Georgia. Well, come on! Everybody even looks different. Come on! Uh, well, I will say that I think that uh, <laughs> a joke. McCoy's dad looks a little bit like um, DeForest Kelly. I thought that was kind of cool. Oh, really? i got to look at that again. Hmm. I thought he looked a lot like uh, uh, the new actor. Uh, Judge Dredd? Judge Dredd, exactly. Judge Carl, Dredd. Carl Urban? Carl Urban, that's it. I thought he looked a lot like Carl Urban. But I'm going to look I'm gonna look at it again as we as we go through the pages. I personally thought he looked a little bit like, um, especially McCoy. when he was older. DeForest like, Kelly. Yeah. Well, yeah, but maybe when he's older. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll go through it again. Uh, I, I definitely know there are pages where he looks a lot like Carl Urban, but uh, I suppose he looks a bit like DeForest, too. Okay. All right. Here we go. So this is ongoing number 17. There's no title I could find. So I just decided to title it myself, and I hereby grant it the title Hearts and Bones. It was published January 2013. Writers Mike Johnson and Dr. Leonard Johnson, MD. Claudia Balboni is the artist, and I think she did a fine job. Inker is Erica Durante. Colorist is Claudia SGC. Stargate Command? I don't know. Letterer Chris Maury. Editor is Scott Dunbuyer, and the creative consultant is Roberto Orki. The primary cover presents 
Dr. McCoy in a Starfleet badge swoosh, looking back over his right shoulder towards, but not quite at, the reader. There is a star-filled space background with a partially obscured caduceus behind McCoy. A small shuttlecraft is to McCoy's right. The art is by Tim Bradstreet and color by Grant Golish. Alternate cover A is a black and white sketch version of the primary cover, art by Tim Bradstreet. Alternate cover B is a photo of Kirk in his fancy red formal cadet uniform. The story opens with a lens flare glinting off the Enterprise's deflector dish. McCoy is recording his medical officer's log. He says days like today remind him of how much he hates his job sometimes. He has to tell a female crew member that her husband will likely die. He was infected with a deadly bug while on an away mission. She confides to McCoy that she talked him into active duty and that her husband was never really cut out for being on a starship. After McCoy tries to pull her out of her regretful spiral into depression, she asks him why he enlisted. McCoy thinks to himself, why did he come out here? He thinks about what to tell her. Maybe he can make a joke about escaping his ex-wife. Or maybe the truth? McCoy thinks back to his childhood in Mississippi, walking on a clear summer's day with his father. Leonard goes and climbs a tree. His father warns him to not go too high. Of course he does. When the sight of the moon, plain as day, in a sunny late afternoon distracts his attention, the tree limb gives way beneath him. Len comes crashing down on his arm. His father diagnoses a broken arm right away and sets to fashioning a splint from tree branches and part of his old Miss t-shirt. Len's father says this is a good medical lesson for him. When you don't have high tech to depend on, you have to make do with what you've got. Still in pain from his fall, Len is no longer as adventurous as he says rather than going to the moon, he can see the moon just fine from where he stands. Later that day in McCoy's office, Len's father uses a bone regeneration device on his broken arm. Len says it feels almost as good as new, which is good since he says he does not want the injury to adversely affect his career plans as a pro basketball player. Len's father is surprised his career choice is no longer to be a doctor. Fifteen years later at the University of Mississippi, Leonard McCoy has grown into an aspiring medical student. He is being chided by a friend over his childhood dreams of being a professional basketball player. Suddenly, McCoy notices the lovely Pamela Branch speaking with two of her friends by a tree. McCoy turns on the charm and goes up to say hi. He walks up just as Pamela is afflicted by an ice cream headache from the ice cream cone she's eating. The future doctor tells her to breathe in warm air deeply to stop the shrinkage of her sinuses, which is being caused by the cold ice cream. It works. She calls him a miracle worker. A long-term relationship begins. Fast forward to Leonard McCoy's wedding day. He is marrying Pamela, the girl of his dreams. He graduated top of his class. He has taken a pediatrics position at one of the most prodigious medical facilities in the state. He is the luckiest man in the world. Later, he is visiting a fiery redhead in her hospital bed. 
one of his patients. Little Jenny, who despite her likely terminal medical condition, wants to join Starfleet and become the captain of a starship. She tells McCoy she envisions the bridge with a window that goes all the way around so that in any direction you look, you can see the stars flying past you. McCoy says she is braver than he is, being out in all that dark space. Spooky! He steps out of the room to discuss the latest test results. They aren't good. The disease has adapted to all treatments they have tried. McCoy rails when his associates suggest maybe it's best to just make her last days as comfortable as they can. McCoy says he was always better at relating to the kids he treated than to their adult parents. The same went for how he related to his wife. The first year was bliss, but after that they grew apart over the years. Despite his best efforts, little Jenny dies. He blames himself for not doing enough. Outside the hospital, staring at the night sky that Jenny believed she would be moving through to the last, a man walks up to the doctor. McCoy has served divorce papers. His marriage is over soon afterward. Later, McCoy is walking in the woods with his father again. His father is an old man now. McCoy tells him he is starting over again in a place far away. His father tells him not to be concerned with him, being lonely since he is now a widower. That widower stuff goes a long way with the ladies. His father's parting words to him is to always work with what you've got. Fast forward to a confining bathroom, a grizzled, unshaven face, and a loud banging on the door. McCoy is in the shuttle that will take he and a new friend, Jim Kirk, to Starfleet Academy, and their future among the stars. McCoy comes out of his reverie and says to the young Starfleet wife that he will do everything he can to save her husband. As he works diligently on a cure, he says the thing about being out here in space is that there's a galaxy of possibilities that he never had access to on Earth. He finally develops a possible cure by working with what he's got. Later, after the treatment begins to do its job, her husband is sitting up and out of isolation. She is beaming and again asks Dr. McCoy why he joined up with Starfleet. Finally, he replies that I suppose you could say an old friend recommended it. As McCoy walks through the ship to the bridge, he thinks how it took him traveling across the galaxy to find his way again. As he enters the bridge, he thinks how the view screen does not wrap all the way around, but he thinks that Jenny would have liked it just fine that way. The end. Now, were you crying like a little baby when you read that last page? I'm crying now. What do you mean then? <laughs> yeah, it's a nice story. I like that. <laughs> that Jenny thing really got me, though. It was just sad. Yeah, well, it's melodramatic, and obviously it's manipulative of the reader, but it worked. Damn them. It worked. <laughs> it For worked. Me, anyway. I liked it. Out yeah. of the three books, this was my favorite that we're going to do today. Right. Even though it, I have the most problems with as far as continuity goes, but oh, yeah. well, I it enjoyed wasn't... the story the most. Yeah, it, there were things in Star Trek V that didn't seem to be in sync. There were things... Of course, maybe they just chose not to show the part about his father dying. But there are other things about his wife that seem out of sync. And you probably have more things to mention. But I do agree. But remember, reboot. Reboot. So did it ever mention what her name is? The wife? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, they, yeah, they mentioned her full name. Where? When he met her in college. Yeah, where is it? Uh, he introduces himself, but I don't see where she ever mentions her name. Well, she doesn't mention her name. He does to his buddy. And I don't know why I'm not finding it. Pamela, Pamela, Pamela Branch. Branch. There you go. Okay, yeah, so it shows that her name is Pamela Branch, who is not the name of his wife in the other continuity. Right. Well, there you go. So because the Kelvin was destroyed, he never met up with uh, Jocelyn McCoy. or who Jocelyn, was... whatever her maiden name was. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't buy oh, there it. There you go. There you go. Hey, J.J. is charting his own course. And so these people, too, I guess. It's fine. I mean, all right, so since it wasn't the same wife, she still, they still had a horrible divorce, which I guess yes. fits in with, uh, in both continuities. Right. So I guess it's really Leonard's fault. <laughs> <laughs> He's the only constant here. Yeah, he just, he just can't keep them happy. Yeah. Uh, so, but in this continuity, he does not have a daughter, where in all the other continuities, he always has a daughter. Right. But as we've seen, her, the daughter's name is not always the same. Sometimes it's Joanna, sometimes it's Barbara. It just depends on which uh, comic book or book you're reading. And you never know. If J.J. in the movies really wants to give him a daughter, I don't think he's going to let this comic book stand his way. Right. Yeah, well, but but that was one of the things I liked so much about the first movie, is that it fit into the continuity of in the a lot established. Of it said, you know, yeah. I had this horrible divorce and she took everything but my bones. Yeah, right. And you know, that fit in with everything else we knew of McCoy's past. And then right. here this book kind of takes away some of that. Some of it, but yeah. And setting it in Mississippi versus Georgia. I mean ah, in the original series the McCoy Georgia made, doctor. He always makes a comment that he's a an old town Georgia doctor. Right. And yeah, I, I wonder I wonder why they changed that. I don't know. So is Mike Johnson maybe from Mississippi? I don't know. Maybe they just thought South was the South and there was <laughs> no difference. No, I don't think Roberto Orkey uh, would just, you know, glance over that. He's the big, uh, big fan, right? Right, and I'm just saying that if you if if there's enough dialogue or any dialogue in the original series episodes or movies right. that state that somebody's from a particular place, then the new continuity should have the same thing. Yeah, I agree. If they would have said Kirk was from Toronto, everybody would be like, oh, no, he's from Iowa. That's right. So, <laughs> I'm saying the same thing here for McCoy. Uh, Mississippi yeah. is not Georgia. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I don't know, but this is a comic, so who knows? <sighs> okay. Yeah, with... You know, Orky actively involved as creative consultant, so I don't know. It just seems like an unnecessary change to make, but whatever. I don't think most people would know. No, but well, would you would you guess that maybe half the audience for this comic book are people that really like Star Trek and might know the history a bit? But maybe uh, the, maybe the percentage is lower. That was my it. opinion, but you, you've pointed out that this book. May get a bunch of people that aren't necessarily into Star Trek, but like the last movie. Sure. Yeah, probably young people. Yeah. That only know are, the new movie. Are you calling me old? 
I don't like that, Ken. Well, you're no spring chicken, man. <laughs> yes, that's true. So do you figure Dr. Leonard Johnson, MD, is maybe Mike Johnson's father or something? Oh, yeah, good point. And he, maybe name. maybe he went to Old Miss. Maybe. And Could maybe be. Mike Johnson fell off of a tree looking at the moon and broke his arm. And maybe his father, Leonard, went ahead and fixed his arm with a bone regenerator. Yep. There you go. All, but it happened. It's all making sense. It's all making sense, yes. <laughs> and since F. Leonard Johnson, M.D., did not die of some horrible rare disease, then it's going to ignore that part, too. <laughs> exactly, right. Or maybe the maybe the original David McCoy got it because he lived in Georgia, and now this new David McCoy lives in Mississippi, so therefore he never contracts the disease. Oh, Maybe. And it's all because the Kelvin blew up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not going to let that go. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes perfect sense why Kirk would be affected since his father died earlier than he should have. Right. But, yeah, you've got a good, you have a good point. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've you know, every time they do time travel stories, we've, we've had the same nitpick because there was that... Uh, that that one issue of the Marvel series where Kirk goes back in time. Or no, no, no. Um, what was her name? The girl that I really liked that was on Pike's ship. The redhead. What was her oh, name? Oh, the blonde. Was, oh, oh the was she? Colt. Colt, yeah. Where she goes into the future at Kirk's time and finds right. out that Kirk couldn't make it in Starfleet and he right. and Scotty are off doing piratey things. <sighs> and I could never buy that that Scotty would never join Starfleet just because Colt in the future will disappear. You right. know, they, they you just got to go with it. It's a right. Story. It's a story. Exactly. There you go. There, that's the spirit. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they pay us the big bucks to do the nitpicking, so uh, that's I feel obligated. You, you're getting money for this? Uh, I get... Uh, because no. I don't get squat, man. I mean, uh, no, kid. We don't get a dime. <laughs> yeah, it's all those Google ads that are on the website, right? Oh, man, rolling in it with that. Oh, yeah. Uh, anybody listening to this, please go to those Google ads and click it about four million more times, and we will get a penny. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But... Uh, so can I uh, can I mention something else or do you? Please do. I want to monopolize all the time. But Go ahead. There, on page one, uh-huh. when the uh, the poor sick gentleman is in his little cryo tube thing. Y- you mean the Vulcan? He's a Vulcan, right? He looks like a Vulcan. He sure does. And then I was having a problem with that because I was like, well, they always make a big deal that Spock's the first Vulcan in Starfleet. Here's another Vulcan, and not only is he Vulcan, but he's married to a human. So I was having issues with that up until the end when it shows him again and he's 100% human. So I don't know (laughs) why he has the Vulcan ears in that first picture. I don't know either. Because he's clearly not Vulcan. Oh, no. So I'm glad I wasn't the only one thinking that uh, those ears were just a tad too pointy. Yes, I agree. I agree. Well, speaking of people that are drawn in interesting ways... I think, this is my opinion, but the young and lovely Starfleet wife who has the sick husband, Mm -hmm. some of the close-ups of her in the face look an 
awful lot suspiciously like Pamela Branch. <laughs> I had the same note. She yeah. looks very, very, very much like. Yeah, her. don't they like have both have the mole on the same cheek? Same, same, almost the same spot. Um, one, right. uh, one I think is a little lower than the other, but well, big full that, lips, petite, lovely. You know, yeah, uh, that's what I say. I, I, I just do they only, can they only draw young women the same one way? I don't think so. Right. Yep. I had the same note. Yeah. I thought it was a really nice Enterprise beauty shot on page three, or well, three pages from the end, I should say. Three pages from the end. Yes, because these don't have numbers, do they? No, yeah, they some, do have numbers. Some of them do, some of them don't. Yeah, so I could figure. So actually, page twenty, twenty, page twenty. Oh yeah, the the ringed planet behind it. Right, right. Yeah. So this that's an interesting orange planet that has two ring systems. I mean, two full ring systems that are kind of like parallel to each other. I've never seen that before. No, it's an interesting shot. Yeah. Pretty cool. Strange new galaxy. They have all kinds of crazy stuff. It's a strange new galaxy. Indeed. Yep. That's all I have to say about this one. Very good. I enjoyed it. Please take the floor if you have something else to say. Uh, The only thing I have to say is the whole Jenny thing. (laughs) Back to that again. (laughs) <laughs> it's so sad. Yeah. Well, it is. You had texted me at one point about uh, about how sad it was, and you hoped that the last one you read, which was issue 18, which you'll be synopsizing here in a few minutes, you hoped that one wasn't sad. And I said, it sure is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, spoiler. When someone says they haven't read something and they hope that it's not sad, you don't say, oh, it's sad, all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I love doing it to you, Donnie. <laughs> Although, unfortunately, this next story uh, is does not have the same punch as 17. No, it does not. And it's funny because both have somebody dying. So they have you know, a dying character that dies slowly, which should elicit some kind of reaction. But uh, yes, what happens in this next story does not elicit nearly the same kind of reaction as with poor Jenny. Right. Yeah, they both have a lot of similarities because they're both have a love story at some point and, you know, one one is a successful love story, which we'll get here in a second, and one is an unsuccessful love story. Yeah. But then they both also have this tragedy. So I'm wondering if there's going to be a theme with all these uh, flashback issues. I don't know, maybe. So far it's 100%. Yeah. Well, you know what I said, though. Oh, uh, yeah, about, uh, yeah, go ahead and say what you said. So what I said is heroes are forged in adversity. There you go. Luke's godparents died, you know. Kirk's father died, you know. Sometimes. You, na- you name it. You name it. Anakin Skywalker, he, he has a very happy childhood. Oh, that's that a great childhood. Ever happened to him. Enslaved mother. Anyway. Uh, yeah, that was a good. No, that isn't very good at all. Uh, Bruce Wayne. Hello. Parents killed in front of him. Clark Kent. His whole planet blows up, including his parents. You said Bruce Bruce Wayne or Bruce Banner? You said Bruce uh, Wayne. I think I said Bruce Wayne. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. All right. I'm pretty sure I said that. Uh, you might have. You probably did. Peter Parker. Uh, hmm. Good point. Hmm. 
hero so is boring need, through it. First. We need to have a happy uh, superhero. Yeah, like a, Spawn. a happy origin. <laughs> Spawn? <laughs> he dies, right? Yeah, he dies, makes a deal with the devil that right. he wants to come back to... He, he'll lead the forces of hell if he could just come back and see his wife. Right. And, and the devil lets him do it, and he comes back five years later to find out that his wife has moved on, married his best friend, and now I have a little kid. <laughs> it's like, oh, what a gut punch. <laughs> yes, he got yeah. what he wanted, but oh, well, it's such, that's so horrible. That's a deal with the devil, right? There you go. That's, a, that's another <laughs> that's, theme. That's what you get with dealing with the devil. Exactly. All right. You want to keep moving, or should we keep talking about comic books? Let's keep talking about comic books, but how about the next issue? All right. This is issue 18. came out February of 2013, just a week or so ago. Written by Ryan Parrott. Script consultant Mike Johnson, creative consultant Roberto Orki, artist is Claudia Baldoni, inker Erica Durante, colorist Claudia SGC, letterer Sean Lee, editor is Scott Dunbar. This also does not have a title, and I didn't come up with a witty little one like you did. Uh, maybe listen to your heart. Hmm? That sounds good. We'll go with that. Oh, my God. Come on. <laughs> that is the theme. It All is? Right. Okay. Did you not notice the theme? All right, let's keep going. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as with all the ongoings, there's the Starfleet swoosh in the middle of the uh, primary cover. Uh, inside of it, we get just a regular picture of Ahura in her red Starfleet dress. Uh, below her is the outline of Africa, and Africa kind of has uh, these um, – looks like matrix symbols inside of it. Uh, and then below Africa is a portrait or side view of Spock, a profile shot of Spock. The alternate cover is just the black and white version of this, uh, both done by Tim Bradstreet. And then the alternate cover is photo cover is just a picture of Cadet Spock. Uh, looks like it's in the scene where Kirk is being tried for cheating. The scene opens with Spock finishing a lecture for a linguist class. He's mentioning that uh, they need to be good listeners, blah, blah, blah. And he tells his students that their thesis is due no later than Sunday evening. He turns around to clear the digital display that has replaced chalkboards in the 23rd century when a woman steps up behind him and says, excuse me, Spock does not turn around. But he does tell the student that there is no extensions for the thesis. Ahura quickly puts him in his place, tells him that her thesis has already been turned in and graded. She also points out that since he is no longer her teacher, then there are no rules against him having dinner with her. His only reply is, fascinating. Months fly by, and the two are still very much an item. The couple are returning from their latest date. When Spock comments that he has, or when Spock comments that he had no idea that they'd still be together after so much time, Ahura agrees with him. Spock then makes a request that they should perform Imafa Kito, 
Ahura incorrectly assumes that this is some sort of sexual advance. Spock calmly corrects her with, not exactly. Later that night, Spock and Ahura are sitting in front of a romantic fire. He tells her that this is a mind meld. Tentatively, Ahura agrees and he touches her face. We then flash to a very young Ahura on board a shuttlecraft. Her mother and father are sitting with her in the cabin while her uncle is at the controls. The craft stalls out or the craft stalls above a planet with large rings. Her uncle states that he will have to go EV to fix the problem. Ahura wants to go with him, but the adults tell her no. While working on the nacelles outside of the craft, her uncle notices that there was some meteor damage, and he starts to work on the repairs, when there's suddenly an explosion. Ahura is able to remain conscious while everyone else inside the craft are knocked out cold. Her uncle's voice comes in through the comms, and he tells Ahura to get herself and her parents to the escape pod. She does not listen to him at first, but after her attempts to open the airlock fails, she starts to listen to her uncle's advice. He tells her how to open the door to the escape pod. He motivates her to get the strength to drag her parents into the pod. She is able to launch the pod just as the shuttle is completely destroyed in a huge fireball. She yells for her uncle since she thought he was there close to the shuttle the whole time. And she's shocked when she learns that he was never there uh, or he was never all that close. All this time, he has been drifting further and further into the planet's gravity well. He tells her how proud he is of her, and he is happy that she will be the last conversation he will ever have. With tears in her eyes, she watches as her uncle bursts into flames as he enters the planet's atmosphere. Back in the present, Ahura pulls away from Spock. She tells him that she's never told anyone but her mother and father about that event. He tells her that her uncle was a very brave man. She wraps her arms around the Vulcan and then pulls him down into a passionate kiss. The end. Hmm. So now we know one of the bases for their very strong, close relationship. The sharing of such a painful event. Isn't he still betrothed to... What's her name? Uh, are you, are you, is this a, a mock time reference or something? Yes. What's her name? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but she, she was... Uh, she was rather a bloodthirsty lady. Right. And she had the hots for some other dude, but... She did. That actually was around. Instead of running around the galaxy... To Pring. To Pring. Oh, you look that up? Or you do, you remember that? Uh, to Pring sounds right. To Pring, yeah. <laughs> oh, you, you looked that up. <laughs> I knew it was to something. I just... <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't narrow it down much with uh, Vulcan females. Vulcan females. To Pow. Yes. To Paul. To Paul. Yeah. And to Pring. Which, you know, fortunately, it's not going to be an issue because Vulcan's going to explode here in a couple of uh, years. <laughs> but, uh, Very good point. Very good point. He's cheating on her. <laughs> yeah. So he has... a lot of room when he shows up for Pond Fire and gets all mad because uh, she's been cheating on him with uh, some other Vulcan dude. He'd be like, eh, okay. What if she survived the planet and got off in time? 
Because we know some Vulcans some did. Some Vulcans did. It's true, she could have. She could have. We still could have the... Uh... You know, that one. Actually, you know what? That would actually be an interesting episode of, uh, you know, the ongoing if they... Re- if they redid that one. one, yeah, that would be interesting. Where they go to New Vulcan or whatever planet the Vulcans are colonizing, and yeah, he finds yeah. out T'Pring survived, and he has the burning of the blood. But I think his blood gets sated quite often with Uhura now on the Enterprise. Well, okay, so <laughs> I gotta ask. I thought that was. Did he have to go back to Vulcan because he had to, like, do it in Vulcan? Which I don't think is the case. Or was it just he just had to do it? It's like, I'm sure Majel Barrett would have helped him with that. Right. I think she even offered, didn't she? Oh, did she? Ooh. Did she not? Maybe I'm just misremembering. I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember that, but maybe. But they would have been very on the down low with that back in the 60s and everything. 60s. Right. It'd be a little more up front now. Probably. No, they don't have to go to Vulcan. That's just where T'Pring was. Okay, cool. Yeah, because obviously young reborn Spock in Star Trek 4, or no, 3, was able to, well, you know. Right. Take care of his needs. With Savick? Yes. Yeah, good thing she was okay. there. Okay, there you go. Good thing she was there. Yeah, good thing. Anyways. So, uh, a Mafa Kito? I never heard that before. It's like they're just making this stuff up. Uh, yeah, have you heard of it before? Or you never! No, I... Okay, it's a mind meld, right? So, it's a mind meld between a couple, and that that grants it a new name? I guess, I mean, because... When, when they first admit... Uh, when they first talk about uh, the mind meld, it it's... You know, in the in the first episode where Spock does it, it's kind of like this taboo thing. And then, of course, right. it becomes a uh, you know a staple of what all Vulcans can do. Right. But uh, if I remember correctly, when he first does it, it's kind of like, oh, you can do that, and you know, there's consequences to it because their minds will be one, and he doesn't want to do it. Blah 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 blah. But I mean, seems seems weird that every time you get into a long-term relationship, you find. <laughs> Well, that is the ultimate sharing, isn't it? It is. Hmm. Which makes it all the more uh, awkward when you go and mind meld with your captain later and a horse <laughs> after that. Eager <and laughs> later. I mean. It's like, come on. He'll, he'll mind meld with anybody. I know. If I was a whore, I'd be like, is this the first time you've ever done it? Here. Uh, yes, yeah, of sure. course. We won't of course it's the first the time. <laughs> so I thought it was a, a sad but cool drawing of Uncle Rahim as he starts to catch fire on re-entry. Um, yeah, I thought that was kind of. I thought the drawings were kind of cool. What was that? On nineteen or on twenty when he's actually. I like the first one where the flames are just there, but it's right. also cool as he becomes a fireball. Right. Hopefully the communication burns up pretty quickly because I really doubt Uhura would want to hear. Ah, I'm burning to death. Yes. Yeah, that would be funny. I'm just glad my last conversation is with you. Oh my god! It <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. We shouldn't be laughing at that. 
<laughs> but that's what he. No matter how stoic you want to be, that's what you're going to do when you. Oh get... heck yes! I mean, quite frankly, he's actually yeah, he's actually talking and says that thing about my last conversation. But he's got he's like he's glowing red. I mean, you you can see the uh, the trail of like vapor coming off of his suit. That right. must have been hot. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. So hopefully she didn't have to hear that part. Yeah. Anyways, I, I just this story was brief. That nothing really happened except for this one thing. And you know they keep stressing that Ahura needs to be a good listener. She needs to listen to her uncle. She needs to listen to her mom and dad. She needs to listen to Spock. And then Spock's saying that you know when you become a communications officer, you need to be able to listen, not just hear. And you know, okay, I get it. She's uh-huh. she's the greatest communication officer that there'll ever be. Right. So she has to be really drummed into her. To listen. That's right. So I thought that was a little heavy-handed. Right. Well, it was kind of like the heavy-handed they were doing with the father and McCoy. Look, work with what you got. You know. They were kind of drilling that. But again, that worked better, didn't it, Uh, than this. Right. And I think because this this very tragic story is supposedly bookended by this romance or the beginning of a romance between Mm -hmm. her and Spock, it makes it... It also kind of undercuts the, you know, the emotional impact of her loss. You know, her uncle just died. Maybe her whole parents died too, because it doesn't ever well, actually say they're alive. It's assumed they are. Well, but. well, but doesn't she say at the end or near the yeah. end? Yeah, no, I've told doesn't. that. I've told that to no one but my parents. But and that's what I'm saying. Up until that point, yeah. you don't know that she didn't just drag her parents' corpses into the escape pod. You know, cause that's what I thought. I thought... Oh, oh up to the point. Dead. Okay. You know, I was thinking that her parents yeah. were dead, only her and her uncle's alive, and, you know, I was getting that emotional, you know, that emotional response I think you're supposed to be getting with this, and then it's just her uncle dies, an offhand comment that her parents still alive, we're yeah. supposed to believe that they're lovey-dovey, and that all's good. It just... I don't know. Well, it didn't work. The love, the the love story uh, and the uh, uh, the the tragic story, so close together. It, at least not well, for me. But but I thought the whole the whole point of the tragic story is she has never shared that with anybody but her parents until Spock, and she shared it in the most intimate way she could through the mind melt. I mean, he knew all of it. But he, you know, her feelings and it? everything. I don't think she shared it. I think he just what? rummaged well, around there and found it. Well, what control does she have of over? I mean, well, he well, doesn't well, say well, think about something. Well, no, he doesn't. But well, I, I don't know whether she shared it or not. But the fact is, he knows it, and he knows one of the most uh, shocking, tragic stories of her life, and she can share that with him. Right. You know, I, I. I I guess I assume she shared it with him consciously, but quite frankly, I didn't even think about that. Well, I wasn't thinking that she shared it with him consciously. I was just thinking that he went to do the mind meld, and he was somehow able to find the one of right. the most traumatic events in her life, yes. and that's what he ends up watching. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. He's and just then... flipping the channels on the TV, and that's just <laughs> what came on. Right. Or maybe it was one of the most difficult traumatic and important events of her life that helped make her who she is and 
now she shared it with somebody else. Oh, Spock! It'd be funny if he broke up with her right then. It's like, uh, you know, I, I think I need a little space here, okay? You know, you're, you're getting kind of, a little too uh, huggy, huggy, huggy thing here. A little space. Oh, I just remembered I have to go call T'Pring. See you later. <laughs> oh, uh, I had to do that thing with Kirk. You know, that thing. Okay. But I'll call you Kirk. later. He doesn't know Kirk at this point. Okay, well, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah, anyways. So, I've only read the first book of a novel series called Starfleet Academy, which is based within the same timeline, and it kind of deals with Ahura and Spock first dating and things like that. Hmm. Um, I've only read the first book, so I don't know how the, the next three books play out, but I'm wondering how well that continuity fits in with this one. Because hmm. it's also said in the rebooted uh, interesting universe, right? So if anybody's well, read those three books, uh, you know, just drop a note. Let me know how you think this fits in with with those four books. So, w- weren't people at Lucasfilms like reading all the novels or treatments of the novels or making suggestions or things to make the continuity better? They don't do anything like that. They don't do anything like that in the Star Trek universe, right? They used to not. I think they're they're doing it now. Uh, hmm. But yeah, used to anything goes. <laughs> you know, as long as they didn't kill off one of the main characters, or, right? You know, or even make you know heavy references to other episodes, then you're all good. Right. Oh, well, and one of the mandates they put on there was that you couldn't reference other novels. Unless it was a direct sequel to that book, so oh. you know uh, Peter David kind of got away with that a little bit because he was he would always pull in so many pieces of random Trek lore, right? That oftentimes he would also reference his own books, um, right? Kind of indirectly, right? But uh, but they were they that that was the kind of direction they were given. Make it a one-off and and don't tie in a lot with other stuff, right? Because they didn't know how it was going to end. There you go. Well, yeah, I guess we'll we'll see if anybody calls in for us, or if we actually read those three books, which I know I'm not likely to, but you never know. I think I own the second one. I just never got to read it. I read the first one when my wife had her wisdom teeth. Oh, out. okay. So you saw the first, or you read the first <laughs> one, right? Oh, so you had a lot of time in your hands? Yeah, I was just sitting in the waiting room, and I was I took that book, and she was in there a long time. Oh. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, I felt bad because you know she wasn't. She was going through all that pain, and I'm here reading about the the courtship of Ahura and Spock. Yeah, and you were really digging it too. <laughs> You're like, hey, stay in there longer. That's I. This is a good part. I don't want to be interrupted. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't Vulcans supposed to be vegetarians? I thought so. Yes. And yet here in this uh, book, however, Spock just eats a blood pie. Well, okay, for but. And so Spock does eat meat when he's back on that ice pat that that ice age pass on that one planet, right? And he has in the TV series, original TV show. But is that because? Well, anyway, so I'm just saying that there are instances where where he has. But um, yeah, well, blood pie. Well, is it, that is blood pie something that's ever been mentioned before in um, in Vulcan? You know, alongside with plomeek soup or whatever. Nope. Oh, he's here yeah. blood pie as far as being a, a Klingon food. Oh. Uh, oh, mm, that's interesting. Mm. 
So yeah, he says, I never thought I would find a human with a taste for rokeg blood pie. Well, obviously he's never met a uh, Scotsman before. Oh, yes, he has. Maybe not yet. Yes. Blood pudding. <laughs> blood pudding. Yes, I know. It's great stuff. Which uh, Have you ever had it? Yes, I have. It, and I'm not uh, and I was being sarcastic with the great stuff. Okay, good. <laughs> Cuz yeah. It, it's not that horrible. It's it, it is a weird consistency, but it's not that bad. Yummy. It's okay. better than haggis. Uh, well, I've had haggis and in Scotland uh-huh. And it was not what I expected. I expected it would be still in the, you know, the, the sausage stuff stuffed in, uh, what, what sheep's intestine? Is that what it's supposed to be? Yeah. But at least what I have, which might not be traditional, well, it looked a lot like, uh, it looked kind of like corned beef hash. It was like a, like kind of a dark red kind of meaty kind of thing, maybe a little brown. Right. And then like white things that kind of looked like, like little potatoes or something. I don't know what it was. Yeah. Right. But it... it it tasted okay. It just wasn't what I was expecting. I, I didn't I didn't care for the taste. Yeah. And then the blood pudding just didn't really have a taste. It was kind of like eating a uh, flavorless sausage patty type thing. Mm. That's great. Speaking of uh, speaking of these things in Scottish, uh, I guess we're going to be learning about Scotty's backstory next issue, eh? We are. I hope they cool. uh, talk about Archer's pet beagle. Yeah, so you figure that'll be the horrible thing that happens to him that forms his <laughs> his heroic thing? Yes, I hope so. Or I don't know. I think out of all of them, that's out of that's what I want to see in Scotty because I want to see Archer. Oh, okay. I mean, you mentioned that Archers might still be around. I want to see him. I want to see yeah. Archer scold you and stick you on uh, Delta Vega. That would be very cool. I think that would be very cool to see a really old Scott Bakula drawing. And, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. That that's my dream issue for next next month. Cool. <laughs> okay. Uh, I am out of things to say about this issue. All right. I just want to talk about, uh, and this is just offhand comment. What's okay. the deal with the photo covers? Kirk wasn't in last issue at all. Not even one panel. Yet he right. gets the photo cover. I mean, this one is Spock, so at least he's in this issue. Right. And he's even in the outfit that he's in the issue. You know, he's wearing the same outfit on the cover as he is in the issue, but that first one, 17? Yeah, it should have been McCoy. Yeah. It should have been a photo of McCoy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That was a, a miss on their part, I think. I think so. All right, let's do Countdown to Darkness. That's what everybody's waiting for. That's what I'm waiting for. Jeez, find out more about this new movie or what leads to it? Heck yeah, let's do it. So um, I get to do this one. This is uh, Star Trek Countdown to Darkness number two. I did not see a title, so I'm just going to assume this is part two. Uh, unless you spotted something I didn't. Nope, I think that's all it is. Okay. February 2013 is the published date. Stories by Roberto Orki and Mike Johnson. Script is by Mike Johnson. Artist, David Messina. Ink assist, Marina Castelvetro. Colorist is Claudia Scarlagothica. Great names. Chris Maury. Scott Dunbuyer. Creative consultant is Anthony Pascale. The primary cover presents the lovely Ahura looking back over her shoulder at the reader. There is a star-filled space background with a portion of a silver Starfleet swoosh to the lower left. 
alternate cover A is a photo of Kirk in uniform. That really is only it. We've only got two different covers. However, there was a third option, just for you to know, uh, I guess like the first issue, where it is actually... The comic book is sealed up hermetically inside of a CGC packaging, so you can't open it up. Well, you can't easily open it up again. So that's for the collectors out there. So interesting, we didn't have a third cover. That's okay, because they just make a black and white version. Who cares? Anyway, my opinion. The issue opens exactly where the last issue ended, on Planet Theodos 4, with Kirk and Spock conversing with Robert April. They are surrounded by the locals, who are followers of April insectoid, and armed with Federation phasers. Kirk states that April is supposed to be dead, died 20 years ago while in command of the Enterprise. April gives Kirk a wry smile and explains that he indeed is Captain Robert April and asks how his ship is doing. Kirk explains his Enterprise was decommissioned two years ago. He is in command of a newly commissioned Enterprise. April explains that there are two factions on Phaedus IV, and they are waging a civil war. It's the other faction that shot down Kirk's shuttle, not his. Before he can complete asking Kirk and Spock back to a safer location, a huge blast erupts nearby, throwing some of April's friends high into the air in agony. April curses that their enemies located them so quickly and gets all of them moving fast towards safety. Kirk says he will not leave without his men back at the shuttle. April says his men have them, so come on. Another explosion convinces Kirk to move. They enter a cave and once they are all in, April uses Kirk's phaser to close up the cave opening with rubble from the cave ceiling. Kirk is annoyed at having his phaser taken from him so easily. April returns it to him after the entrance is sealed up. Kirk tells him not to do that again. April says hopefully he won't have to, and leads them further into the cave. Meanwhile on the Enterprise bridge, Chekhov is reporting the captain's party is overdue, and that interference from the surface is making communication impossible. Ohura wants to go down after them, but McCoy inexplicably talks her out of it, saying they're probably fine, and it's the interference that's preventing them from reporting in. A little more time, planet side, will probably do Kirk's mental health a world of good. Kirk and Spock continue to follow April through the caves, while he explains that their attackers are the dominant rulers of this planet. Same species as his friends, but much more aggressive and far better armed. They walk to what appears to be a dead end in the cave, but after fiddling with an older-style tricorder, Captain April is able to turn off a convincing hologram to expose a metal hatch that looks like the door to a Fort Knox safe. After April opens it, they go through and are confronted with a huge cavern, with a huge stalactite structure coming down from the ceiling. Lights are all about the huge structure. They enter a room with lights, a bed, a computer, and other effects. Kirk asks April for his story, but April says that that is not important. What is important is that Kirk and his ship are here now, and he has a chance to make a difference in the lives of millions of people. They can save this world. Kirk asks him to cut the hyperbole 
and tell him the truth. April tells his story. Twenty years ago, he was captain of the Enterprise. They arrived at Phaedus IV to conduct the first survey of the planet. They found genocide going on. The dominant race, called the Shadows, was wiping out the other race on the planet. They were the same species, with only outward differences being the color of their skin. Apparently, that was enough of a difference for the Shadows to use their aggression and iron weapons to systematically wipe out their lighter-skinned cousins. Due to the Prime Directive, all April could do was watch the genocide from orbit. April showed Kirk some of the atrocities recorded back then. What Kirk saw them do, even to children, as readily as they did to adults, sickened and angered him. Finally, April could take it no more. He turned the con over to a CO, packed all he could, and ordered the transporter chief on duty to beam him down to the planet. April never looked back. He snapped the prime directive like a dry twig. He saved and armed enough of them to mount a counter-offensive that prevented the shadows from wiping them out totally. April's strong friendship with his first officer, Alex Marcus, is the only thing that kept April from being exposed and hunted down for his crimes. Marcus told Starfleet April had died. Over the years, April learned how to procure Starfleet weapons and other tech needed for the rebellion. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise Bridge, Uhura is convinced the landing party is in trouble. But before she can start organizing her rescue team, Chekhov reports a small civilian ship is approaching them. Uhura opens a channel and ends up speaking to a blonde woman who appears to be Bajoran based on her nose ridges and earring. She is making a delivery to a big-shot captain named April. McCoy asks if she means Robert April. She says yes. Finally, Uhura asks who she's speaking to. The apparent arms dealer responds, asking them to call her Mud. Back on the planet, Kirk, Spock, and April are outside at a high vantage point. Kirk is using high-tech binoculars and sees the enemy in the distance. April tells Kirk that is where he will see Sulu and Hendorf. They were taken by the shadows. April says that army is making their final push to complete wiping out he and his friends. A goal they almost achieved 20 years ago. Someone with more resources than April can get his hands on and is arming the shadows with artillery and other weaponry that will allow them to complete their genocidal goals. Unless Kirk uses the Enterprise's weapons to wipe out the army. Kirk will not do it. The people of this planet should not even know the Enterprise exists, much less use it to wipe out a race on the planet. April tries to tell Kirk he is committed now. He was the moment he decided to take that shuttle down here. Kirk will have none of it. He says he and his men are going to leave as quickly and quietly as he can, and they are going to take April with them. There is a holding cell in San Francisco just waiting for him. Suddenly, Kirk and April realize Spock is nowhere to be found. The scene shifts to Spock. He is running through the desert landscape, alone with a backpack on and two phasers, one in each hand. He is running towards the army encampment. To be continued. Hmm. <laughs> wow. Wow. 
it's like is taking control. He is. He is. He he's making it happen, man. He is turning into Schwarzenegger. <laughs> is that right? He is. Look at him. He's action hero, man. I like his backpack. It's like made up of like two or three rifles. Is that what that is? Because I couldn't tell. That's what I thought. I thought it was a bunch of rifles. May, may it, that could be it. Because uh, I was looking, you know, I was looking at it, and it's like he's got some kind of weird backpack on. What is that? But I think you're right now that you mentioned that. Yeah. So, so the the two slings that are across his chest are the slings for the phaser rifles. Hmm. Yeah, and he has two hand phasers in his in his hands. Exactly. So he's gonna go there and just start kicking butt, taking names, and rescuing Hendorf and Sulu. Sulu, right? That is that's wacky. That's not Spock. Nope. I mean, it's a little out of character for him. It is, isn't he? More like you know, let's think about this for a minute. Let's have a plan. You know. <laughs> you know. So yeah, I I am curious to see how how this will fit into the new movie because yes. I'm struggling. Whereas in Star Trek Countdown, the first one, the yeah. The uh, countdown before the the 2009 movie. I mean, it right. tied in really well to the movie. Oh yeah, completely. And, and this will too. It's just not obvious. It's at this really point. not obvious. Well, here's my theory. You want to hear it? I do. Okay. And this is not this is not really that new. I think in the end, Kirk's going to grab April and bring him back to Earth for his breaking the Prime Directive, which is really kind of ironic considering who'd be doing that <laughs> i mean kirk you know abused the prime directive on a regular basis for good for good reasons but still and somehow him being taken like that is going to get john um whatever his last name is harriman 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 harrington no it's... harrington well what... harrison john harrison, harrison that's it john harrison right i'm theorizing that that is going to be the act that is turning john Harrison on the Federation and Starfleet and uh, especially Kirk and Company. Right. The only thing is, I don't, I don't know where, where John Harrison fits into the story so far. It looks like it's just April who's here. So. Right. And and where does the whole, um, you know, maybe, you know, genetically bred Superman thing comes in, which supposedly we think we're led to believe. Harrison is a, is a is a product somehow of eugenics. There's nothing talking about eugenics here. No, I, I think maybe after they grab April, they'll jump in the Enterprise to go back home. And they'll find the Botany Bay, <laughs> open the pod next to Khan, and out That's pops where he is. John Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm Sherlock Holmes. Oh no, I'm sorry, I'm John Harrison. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So. Can I talk about timelines real quick? And I know sure. it's a reboot, it's a reboot, blah, blah, blah. Reset. Reset. <laughs> Go ahead. But, uh, you know, Kirk was born in 2233, isn't that what they said, when the Kelvin was destroyed? And this would take place in 2259, so about 26 years before, so Kirk's supposed to be about 26 years old. Okay. So, so this April was captain of an Enterprise twenty years ago. 
which right. would be back when Kirk was was about six years old. That's when yep. that's when it disappeared. That's right. Hmm. Which which predates all the you know the prime universes, you know, uh, the, you know all the expanded universe that talked about how April took command uh, with George Kirk in twenty two forty four of the yep. Enterprise, and they named it the Enterprise, and blah blah right. blah. Yep. So. I'm just saying that this this story makes the Enterprise his Enterprise even older than April's Enterprise was in the original universe. Right, and in the flashback where you see his Enterprise, yeah, it doesn't look all that different from Kirk's Enterprise. It doesn't look at all different. It's well, the exact it, same ship. Well, I don't know. Maybe the, then the cells might be maybe a little less high, like like a little thinner. Uh, especially towards the front of it, but that's only a possibility. Uh, other than that, it looks the same. It looks the same to me. I mean, yeah. I could see your argument about that, but it also it's inconsistent as far as the artwork. Right. Right. So I, I'm just really disappointed that they didn't even try to show an older version of what the 2009 Enterprise was going to look like. I agree. I mean, I why not? That. Why not have it look like the you know the refit? <clears throat> NX-01 that, you know, they've done in some of the other expanded universe stuff, where it actually has an engineering section underneath the saucer and things like that, where it looks kind of like a combination of the right. NX-01 and the uh, the uh, the Enterprise from the Cage episode. Sure. Right. So, I mean, right. So a little bit like that Ships of the Line, you know, missing link right, right. version. Exactly. The, the refit. Exactly. Uh, like NX-01 yeah. refit. Yeah, NX-01 refit. Right. Why, I don't know why. Why couldn't you just use that? <clears throat> I think that seems reasonable to me. Right. Something. Yeah. And is it the NCC-1701 Enterprise? And they completely decommissioned well, that ship and opened up and created a new ship with the same exact registry number? Uh, I, I think it's... Yeah, I think it's a new registry number, or else we would have had an A, wouldn't we? Right. Well, if they follow Next Generation naming conventions. Right. Which they might not yet, but still, isn't right. that a little confusing? Well, I don't know. Well, even in Next Maybe Generation, you know, they had a Defiant, Yeah. It, but it didn't have the same registry number as the Defiant did in the original. Yeah, and, and that makes sense, because they're different ships. Different physical ships should have a different registry number. Well, then Come the on. Enterprise D should have a different registry than the Enterprise A. Well, yeah. Well, it does. It's got an A at the end. <laughs> Hello? I'm saying the last four digits, the last four numbers, aren't the same on the Defiant... In Deep well, Space okay. Nine versus Defiant and uh, that's the fine, but the Enterprise is special. It's Kirk's ship. Come on, it's say it's say the Galaxy and the Federation. How many times? Come on. Uh, all right. All right, but well, they don't they don't start doing I'm, that. That's kind of funny. I'm trying to be funny, but they don't yeah. start doing that until until Kirk's ship. Then they start throwing on a letter. Right. Because that's what well, the the Enterprise is unique. Come on. The Enterprise is unique. Yes, right. You're right. So, Archer's Enterprise. Wasn't that unique? It was unique. And then now April's <laughs> Enterprise, and now Pike's Enterprise, and Kirk's Enterprise. They all look the same now. It makes me mad. Yeah. <laughs> well, another thing that looks kind of uh, the same, and I'm actually kind of cool, is we have April using a tricorder that looks almost directly out of the Taz TV show. I like that. Right, the big blocky thing. The big blocky thing. 
The thing that looks like a like like a 1960s uh, cassette recorder or something. Yes, exactly. Right. But so he, I I, th- I thought that was a nice nod. But he's wearing a uniform from the current version. So his uniform is well, just a different I, shade. I, I don't know why that I would say it's a, from the current version. I mean that's a, that's a cool looking jacket. Can, can you see his shirt well enough? It does. Not, he's, he's got a gold shirt underneath. Right. Well, when it shows him on the bridge of his Enterprise, you right. can see his, all the uniforms, and they're the exact oh, same point. style as Kirk's. Yeah, and they shouldn't be. That's twenty years ago. Right. I agree. I agree. So that's just me being nitpicky. I just just. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. So, so there's a picture of him in his soiled tunic. April. On fourteen. On twelve. Uh, he might be on fourteen too, but I'm looking at twelve. Right, right, yep. And you're right, except for it being a green color instead of a gold color, it does look like like Kirk's. And that might just be because it's 20 years old and he doesn't have a washing machine. Uh, that's true, <laughs> but in his memory, he's got a green tunic on also. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just trying yeah. to be funny. I got you. I got you. So anyways, I, I, you know, I, I hate to say I didn't like the story because of that, but it did take me out of the story. Cool. Do you know what took me out of the story? Is there's, near the front, there is a scene where April has a little wry smile on his face as he's reacting to Kirk's assumptions about him and things like that. Right. And when I'm looking at that picture, so it's on page two, Mm -hmm. he looks just like Ian McClellan playing Magneto or Gandalf. Pick, Pick either one. But but he has a goatee and not a beard. I know that. It doesn't matter. He he looks like Ian McClellan. Uh, with the nose and the blue eyes and the yeah, and yeah, the mouth. And the Big smirk. time the mouth. Right. right. The, yeah. Right. Right. On page two, uh, second cell from the top or second panel, a uh, little panel from the top. Yeah. But then uh, later later on that same page, he kind of looks like uh, Christopher Lloyd. Not Christopher Lloyd. Uh, <laughs> Christopher Lee. Alex. Christopher Lee. Alex. <laughs> Christopher Lee. I thought. Where he he looks more sternly. Oh yeah, eh, yeah. I guess I could see that. Uh, Count Dooku, I assume you mean. Right. Right. Or that that dude from uh, what was his name in Lord of the Rings? Uh, what Gandalf? No, the one Christopher Lee played. Uh, the White. Oh, Christopher Lee. Oh, right, right. That guy. Yeah, I know what you mean. Okay, the bad guy. Yeah. Sauron or whatever. Yeah, Sauron. 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 Sauron the White. Whatever the White. Whatever it was, that guy. Yeah, Christopher. The guy that's not a big eyeball. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay. Okay, fine. I'm not as much into the Lord of the Rings. Sorry. Yeah, me either. Now the Hobbit, I enjoyed, but I didn't. Uh, okay. What I meant the book, not necessarily the last movie. Oh, okay, okay. Although. It had its charms, the last movie, but yeah, it was it wasn't as good as I was hoping it would be. And I didn't even get the seven minutes didn't even get the seven minutes of Star Trek into Tell it. me about it. <laughs> I didn't. Well you showed up late. It's your own fault. I, I showed up exactly on time. On time. <laughs> no, I showed up exact Come on. Yeah, you said yours showed the previews early. Yeah, I don't want to go into this again. Uh, so, yeah. So the movie started exactly the, on the published time of the movie start, which never happens. Isn't that funny how convention is like that? 
You get there exactly when it's supposed to start and what starts. 15 minutes of previews. But not in this case, when I wanted to see the previews. Whatever. Uh, isn't that called Murphy's Law? What what will go yeah. wrong, will go wrong. Or what can go wrong, will go will wrong. Will go wrong, yes. Murphy. Damn you, Murphy. Damn you. Okay. So, uh, yeah, we already talked about Spock looking pretty badass. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, did, did we talk about a Bajoran? Oh, let's talk about that. Yes. Oh, of course, you had to do that. Your favorite character is resurrected as a hot blonde. My favorite character? You hate Harry Mudd. Oh, yeah, what the hell? Mudd's <laughs> daughter? And she's a Bajoran? Uh, yeah, a pretty cute one. Yeah, well, I'm still hung up on that she's a Bajoran, and that, yeah. you know, normal Starfleet history, they didn't find the Bajorans until much later. But yeah, well, now she's also mud. <clears throat> right. I-, I wonder if we're going to hear about Cardassians and stuff from her, if we do hear much out of her. Yeah, maybe she's not really Harry Mud. Maybe she's uh, maybe she's one of those robots he was trying to sell. Yeah, <laughs> when they're in an episode Mud's Women or something like that, where oh no, yeah. they, well, no Mud's they Women. took they took youth youth pills or something, right? That was the first time you met him. Okay. The next time you met him, it was androids. Okay, okay, okay. See, maybe she's one of the androids that happens to be a Bajoran, or at least looks like a Bajoran. Sure, why not? And a cute one, too. Hmm. Oh, well. But she looked like she'd be really formidable. Well, I, don't, I won't say it. But on the bottom of page 19, she looks almost almost vicious. She got the, that, that smile with all the teeth bared. Right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, in that episode where Mud had the androids, did, did he have a, a wife in that one? Um, at the end, for the big laugh fest, uh-huh. um, somehow they were able to whip up, the Starfleet crew, was somehow able to whip up a version of the androids that was his wife, Evie. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. That's right. He actually did have that robot before at the beginning, and what he used to do is uh, when she, he'd, he'd trot her out once in a while and she'd start... Uh, you know, giving him a hard time, and he'd just say, "Shut up, Evie," and then she'd shut up. But not after they reprogrammed her. That was that. That was the fun-filled ending. Uh, well, you think this is supposed to be her? No, this is Harry Mud. You think this is Harry Mud? Not. I think this is Harry Mud. Evie Mud, or whatever her name was. I think the Kelvin ca- caused Harry Mud to become younger. And hotter <laughs> and a female. Man, that is some. That is something. <laughs> you may be right. I don't know. All we, yeah, yeah. All we know is that she calls herself Mud, with two Ds. So there you go. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how that plays out. Hopefully, it won't be Harry Mud, but it'll be, you know, his wife or something. Daughter something who happens to be half Bajoran right enough that she's got the ridges right well Wait. we'll find out we'll find out <laughs> we'll now see. didn't when I first was just kind of thumbing through this book uh, mm-hmm. and not you know actually reading it mm-hmm. when I was first thumbing through it I thought 
oh wow, Carol Marcus when I saw. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, this will this will actually tie into the movie. This is going to mm-hmm. introduce us to Carol Marcus before the movie starts. Mm-hmm. And then when I was actually reading it, I realized the nose ridges and that doesn't that doesn't add up. No, it doesn't. Does it? Although she does kind of look like the girl who's playing. Uh, what's her name? Alice Eve. Right. Don't you think she kind of looks like her? She does kind of look like her. So. And Alice Eve is a Brit, and she's really cute when she talks too. Anyway. Okay. Well, wasn't she in some other sci-fi movie here recently? I don't know. She. I think she's been in something recently. I don't know whether it's sci-fi or not. Mm. I, I don't know that, but... Okay. I just know that I've heard her name before right. Star Trek, but I can't remember what. Yeah, All right. I don't. I don't know, but she's pretty cute. And when they were talking to her at the uh, the British... The, the Baffas... Bamas, whatever. Um, they had a quick interview with The British with Oscars? The, it's some British... Maybe it is the British Oscars. I don't know. But it's some kind of British awards. Right. That, that has a bunch of actors around. Right, right. Anyway, she was pretty cute when she was saying um, that Cumberbach is not playing Khan. Khan. He's not playing Khan? Okay, hmm. I we'll believe see. you. We'll see. We'll see. Anything else on this one? The last thing I have to say is some of the flashbacks to the uh, genocide is pretty violent. But they're all like insect guys, so somehow I feel less tweaked about it. Right, yeah, it's just like stepping on an ant. It's not going to make you sad? No, not at all. Although seeing (laughs) severed hands flying in the air right, and decapitations with all this red blood just going all over the place, kind of gross. It is pretty violent. Yeah. You think this is some sort of racial uh, comment? You know, the wouldn't be the first time with Star Trek. Black insects versus green insects. Exactly. Except on the left side and the right side. <laughs> so at least that has some sort of uh, you know tie into the the spirit of the original series. Right. Yes, it does. But we'll see how it all plays out. Yes, Next because week. as you are are interested and don't quite see where this is leading to the movie, I'm not as sure either. So hmm. it should be very interesting to see how this all ties together. Indeed. 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 Alright, well I don't have anything else, Ken, do you? I don't I don't wanna No, just, I got nothing else. Keep talking to talk. No. Alright. So uh real quick, January and February of two thousand thirteen, since it just happened we don't have a lot to talk about as far as Expanded Universe. Uh, there was two novels, but one of them hasn't even technically come out yet at the time of the recording, so obviously I don't have a lot of details on that. But in January of 2003, there was an original series novel called Allegiance and Exile by David R. George III. He's written quite a few um, original series novels. Uh, this is based towards the end of the original five-year mission, so right before the motion picture type era. And then in February 2003, or actually later this week, there will be an original series novel, Devil's Bargain by Tony Daniel. And from what I can gather, this is based at some point during the original five-year mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't have any other details on it. Hmm. So it, hopefully it actually come out on time. All right, so that's it. So uh, 
I don't have anything else to talk about except for next week we're going to be doing the original series 61 through 63 mm-hmm. of the DC Comics. So, Indeed. Looking forward to that one. Yeah. Yeah, get back to the real Kirk and Spock. Right. Not this reboot stuff. Jeez. The shit. So speaking the of the shit. Oh, you're going to bring up the Oscars. Academy Awards. <laughs> that was so cool. Uh, I think that Seth is like the coolest guy on the planet. Yep. That I he like would it. he would defy quote coolness to go with his inner sci-fi Star Trek fanboyism and find a way to get the shat on the freaking Oscars. That was so cool. Yeah, because he's probably never going to win one. (laughs) Probably? Are you kidding? That's probably the first time he ever went to one. It was funny. They did show him in the crowd later, so he he was there throughout the whole ceremony. Yeah, they just had him go back in the costume and some set in the back. Uh, I think that was pre-taped. Yeah, you think so? That's possible. Yeah. Right. Like, the funniest thing on the whole show. Was the shat? No. The pre-tape bit. Oh, right, right. Yeah, which is which is when Seth is is dangling up there dressed as the flying <laughs> nun. That was the funniest thing I have seen in a very long time, and I'll include Ted. In so you're a big assessment. Ted fan? No, no, no I, I like Ted. I mean, there were parts that were kind of lame and it was kind of got boring in parts, but I I like I like Ted. But that deal, that 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 bit with the flying nun and Sally Field, ah, oh, that was that was comic genius. <laughs> All right, that was it. Well, okay, I w- I grew up with that show. Yeah, no, I thought, I thought it was funny. I, I, and he's making all the Gidget references. I thought it was great. Oh, <laughs> when you were Gidget, so hot. Oh, that was great. <laughs> that was funny. Yes, it was definitely funny. <laughs> and then they they take off in the Trans Am. Ah, that's great. I love that. <laughs> All right. Well, I just wanted to bring up Shatner was there, <laughs> <laughs> and I took it over. Sorry, but yes, Actually, that, that was good. And then another Star Trek reference. I thought it was hilarious when they did the Von Trapp introduction for uh, Christopher Plummer, who oh. played General Chang in Star Trek Six. I thought that was so funny. I was laughing so hard. And then <laughs> that Nazi comes out. He is gone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, so that was a Sound of Music reference. Yes. Did that have some, What did that do with Star Trek? I mean, well, except for the fact that... Christopher Plummer was in Star Trek. Well, well yeah, okay. okay no, no, it, it had just... nothing to do with Star Trek itself, but right. I'm saying Christopher Plummer has a tie-in with Star Trek, and that, yeah, that yeah. part there was, was hilarious. Oh, right, which is a, mainly a Sound of Music tie-in, right. but yes, yes, right. that was very good, too. Yes. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. I have, I've only recently watched Sound of Music, so uh, it was... Maybe it was funnier to me because I, I and I wouldn't have gotten it if I didn't watch Sound of Music just like a month ago. Right. Well, yeah, and I gotta say, when I was just laughing there a few seconds ago, I was thinking of the uh, flying nun outfit again. Sorry. <laughs> Although no. the Sound of Music thing was funny too. 
I did I did I had no idea what he was going for at first. And then it's like, oh, sound of music. Oh yeah, yeah. That's funny. That's good. I like that. It was hilarious. It was hilarious. Best thing you've ever seen. Don't lie. <laughs> no, the flying nun was the best thing I saw. And and the shad is a close second. Anyway. Alright. I think we're we're off in the ditch now. So we are we are <laughs> the wheels are up in the air spinning, yes. <laughs> Alright, okay. so we'll be back next week. Sounds great. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on the review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic, second name Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.